Okay, good evening, everybody. Uh, welcome to the LSE. Uh, particularly welcome if, if you're not uh, from the LSE. It's my enormous pleasure to introduce Professor Catherine uh, Meridale uh, this evening, Professor of Contemporary History at Queen Mary College, University of London. She's very wide-ranging in her publications on Russian history, as I'm sure you know, this is why you are here. She's a pioneer in many ways, particularly in the use of, of oral history. And her books have therefore had a very wide scholarly and a very wide popular audience as well. She's the author of Moscow Politics and the Rise of Stalinism, Soviet Government Official Handbook, 1922-41, The Night of Stone, Death and Memory in Russia, which was the winner of the Royal Society of Literature's Heinemann Prize for Literature and shortlisted for the Samuel Johnson Prize. That was a book that looked at the very difficult questions of death, of ritual and of memory in the Soviet Union. And as one of the reviewers pointed out, it told us far more about the Soviet Union and post-Soviet Union than the title implied. It really touched on many aspects of psychology and society. It was then followed by um, Ivan's War, the Red Army, 1939-45. Again, a very highly acclaimed study of simply what it was like to be one of the Red Army soldiers in 1945. Uh, the emotional side, the courage, if you like, the fear, uh, the despair of being a member of an army that lost so many sort of colleagues. But today she's going to talk about uh, the Kremlin, a uh, fascinating topic, and I have to advise you of the hashtag uh, for this. The hashtag for this event is hashtag LSE Kremlin. All of us feel that way sometime, LSE Kremlin, but that's the hashtag for tonight. <laughs> we hope there will be a podcast. I'm always advised to say technical difficulties notwithstanding. <laughs> but tonight she's going to talk to us about uh, the Kremlin and her most recent book, Red Fortress, The Secret Heart of Russia's History. So, may I give you a welcome, please, Catherine Meridale. Well, what can I possibly tell you about the Kremlin after that? Um, I'd like to begin by showing you a picture. Now, it really is a pleasure to be here to talk to you about this fabulous place that I've been studying. And whatever else I do tonight, I hope I'm going to change the way you all look at the Kremlin and perhaps at Russia too. But I should start by saying that it's a very tricky character to introduce. Everyone who writes about places seems to want to call their books biographies these days. There are lots of them about. But thinking about the Kremlin, one gets into trouble very quickly. In fact, if it were a person, I think someone would probably diagnose it with multiple personality disorder. For a start, it's not one building, but a walled compound, a sort of mini city. And it has a range of functions, everything from tourist site, which is how we all meet it the first time around, to presidential palace, and from weapons store and communications hub to orthodox religious shrine. But at least you can't miss it. The Kremlin covers just over 65 acres of prime central Moscow real estate, and the outer walls, those blood-red bricks that you can see at the bottom of that picture, run for just under two miles. Those walls, of course, are one of the things that define it, and their archaic swallowtail battlements cut a silhouette 
that's really quite striking in the middle of the modern city. I remember being completely exhilarated the first time I was in Moscow and saw it, and actually I still am every time I see the Kremlin still. But inside, the Kremlin is even more interesting. Towards the southwest corner are three of the most important cathedrals anywhere in Russia. The fortress also contains three massive palaces and several internationally important museums. The earth underneath it is riddled with ancient tunnels, secret chambers and, of course, a network of state-of-the-art communications and military surveillance technology um, that I'm not able to comment on. It has all this and it also has the privilege of being the official residence of the President of the Russian Federation. Now these days that residence itself is in the neoclassical Senate building, an 18th century masterpiece that symbolizes all the elegance and rationality of the age of Catherine the Great. But when most people think about the Kremlin, the images that spring to mind are likely to be Stalin and five red stars, or Ivan the Terrible and a pile of severed heads. What we might call the red and gory version of Russia's history is present here in every stone. I'm going to talk about two aspects of that history this evening. I think they are the two most central ones for anyone who wants to understand Russia. And I've also come to think of them as the defining elements of the Kremlin itself. The first is power, and the second, which twines round it like a creeping plant, is state-sponsored secrecy, the manufacture of illusion. Both are embodied in this beautiful icon. It's called the Tree of the State of Muscovy, and it was painted by the court artist Simon Ushakov in 1668. The Kremlin in the foreground, at the bottom of the painting, was the one of Ushakov's own lifetime, the 1650s, 1660s and 1670s. But it is still immediately recognisable to anyone who knows the place today. Now the icon is beautiful, but I'm not going to lecture you in art appreciation. Instead, the most important aspect of it from my point of view is that it shows historical continuity. In fact, that's what, what its purpose was when it was painted. This side shows all the princes of Muscovy going up in time chronologically and on that side you have a succession of saints, all of them of course Russians. But either way the tree grows in a nice unbroken line and the whole scene is blessed by an image of the Virgin of Vladimir in the middle, Moscow's most sacred icon. So our picture is a fantasy of the Kremlin. I won't labour the points because they're obvious, but what we're being offered is a fortress at the heart of Russia that is holy, eternal and firmly rooted in the sacred soil of Moscow. Well, let's take another look at this seductive image of the place this evening. The point I'm going to make is that the idea of continuity is a fiction and it was created and it is still used to mask the crude realities of power. So let's start with that power then, the first of my two themes. As it happens, it was also the original reason why I wanted to look at the Kremlin in the first place. I started to be interested in it when I was working with the victims of political abuse 10, 15 years ago. 
In the 1990s and 2000s, I traveled around the old Soviet Union and interviewed literally hundreds of former gulag inmates, the victims of Stalin's oppression, and even people who'd fought in that terrible war, the Great Patriotic War, and whose lives the state paid so little heed to, did little to protect. The more I talked to the people who had suffered under Soviet rule, the more curious I became to know about the perpetrators of all that violence. <coughs> Back home, a lot of people, and I have to say not necessarily my friends, suggested that I might make a study of the camp guards in the Gulag, or of Soviet-era informers. But this wasn't a very attractive prospect, for one thing, and for another, my earlier work had convinced me that they were not the ultimate problem. Whenever I tried to think about the mechanics of oppression, I ended up concluding, concluding even, that responsibility really lay with the management, with the leadership. If you want to know about the dark side of Stalin's Russia, you really can't escape the question of elite power. And the same is broadly true of Russia still. If you want to know how it works, you can study corruption, blood, for instance. But ultimately, even if your investigation leads you to ask questions about the legal system or the banks or the army, you really can't evade the issue of power. There are lots of ways of writing about that, I know. Political scientists, for instance, are masters of dissection. But when they point their scalpels at the creature that is Russia's leadership, I think their hands quite often falter. Because the leadership of Russia, the elite, the management, whatever you want to call it, is not a simple animal at all. The nearest equivalent in nature might be that jellyfish, the Portuguese man of war, which is in fact a group of individual animals all sailing under one colourful float. And in the case of the Portuguese man of war only, I must say, very poisonous. Power in Russia isn't just complex either. It tends to be elusive and even faceless. Whatever political scientists may do, and there used to be an entire branch of the subject called Kremlinology, I think it flourished here amongst other places, most other people give up the chase in the end. When most of us talk about Russia's government, we use a shorthand, the Kremlin. That's where I started then, and I set out to unpick the web of associations and stories that the old fortress conjures for us all. So instead of starting with the leadership now, I started with the Kremlin. That has meant looking at a succession of human occupants, but it also involved thinking about the physical place, buildings, contents, gold leaf and all. Architecture and visual art, after all, have always spoken louder than print. So if you want to know what messages this state is giving, here is a place to see them and read them. The stories that emerge from all of this are seldom less than fascinating. They take us to the core of the Russian state and they show us how power was conceived and exercised. To return to Ushakov's icon, though, I must bring in my other theme, because you can't talk about the Kremlin without discussing propaganda and illusion. And my second theme takes us right to history itself. I don't suppose I need to convince you about the topical importance of history. 
and I'm sure you all know why it relates to the question of continuous power. History has been a tool of government in Russia for a very long time. A few years ago, and certainly when I was a student, you could have been forgiven for blaming all this on Karl Marx. His theory of revolution and his writings about dialectical materialism were all deeply historical. So any communist regime was bound to allude to the inexorable processes of history when it tried to explain itself. The Bolsheviks lectured everybody about this, so I certainly won't. You don't have to, as it were. But Lenin's aides were also quick to take advantage of their chance to connect with history of a different sort. As a parvenu regime with very shallow roots, they wanted to use history as a way of establishing their cultural, that is their Russian, legitimacy. This was one of the reasons why they took over the Kremlin in 1918, despite the fact that there were people who argued that the old Tsarist place, the old Tsarist seat as it were, the seat of imperial oppression, should really have become an international museum. The Bolsheviks soon got rid of them. And then they wove folk history and popular monarchism into their Marxist rhetoric to create a uniquely Russian idea of Marxism and a uniquely Soviet Kremlin. So history was one of the most crucial tools of Soviet power. Stalin proved that in the early 1930s when he arrested a whole load of innocent or fairly harmless well-meaning Marxist university professors. More recently, as we know, the past took centre stage again in the era of glasnost. When the time came to dismantle Soviet communism, history became the reformers' weapon of first choice. And it was a devastating one. By the time the newspapers had started to question Lenin's actions of 1917, and that was hardly new news in 1989 when the world was collapsing around the ears of the Soviet regime, the party was really over for the Soviet Empire. History was a devastating tool. But just when we all got the hang of that and began to understand the unravelling of the Marxist ideology, Russia moved the goalposts yet again. We've made a lot of discoveries in the 13 years since Mr. Putin came to power, but one of them, at least as far as history is concerned, is that Karl Marx was not as guilty as we thought. Now that Russia is not communist, and now that there are adults living in Moscow who don't even remember Soviet power, we can't go on pinning the blame for the government's obsession with history on revolutionary ideology or Marxism. The past is just as lively now as it ever was. And there is lots of evidence that it's still an instrument of state power. The present Russian government has consistently disapproved of what it sees as rank disorder in the field of history teaching. You probably all know about the textbook crisis in 2007 when a state-sponsored new work uh, introducing Russian history since 1945 praised Stalin as a good manager and had promptly to be removed from sale and revised. But the doctoring of history didn't stop with the recent past. The same year, 2007, also saw the launch of an epic film called 1612, which told the story of the Kremlin's rescue from invading Poles. The producer was Putin's friend and admirer, Nikita Mikhalkov. And while that film was showing Russians what real patriots were meant to do in a crisis, a television docudrama called The Death of an Empire gave a thinly disguised commentary on Putin's Russian state by talking about 
the fall of Byzantium. Why not? The old Greek Empire was presented as a sort of template for the new Russia, strong, religious, and independent of Western Europe. In an election year, with everyone waiting to see what Putin would do about the inconvenient detail in the Russian constitution about standing for a third term, the presenter of the death of an empire told viewers that Byzantium's greatest initial weakness had been a rule that forced its emperors to resign after one or two four-year terms. <laughs> so what is it about history and the Russian state? If you want to answer that question, the Kremlin is the perfect research site. I'm a 20th century specialist and my title, is, as Professor Hartley kindly said, is Professor of Contemporary History. But I've come to believe that you need to know something about the deep past if you want to study the present. Not many of us do this because at a relatively tender age we're encouraged to become specialists in one narrowish time period. It's true that the deep past must stand on its own feet most of the time. The idea that it has to be relevant at any cost is not a very helpful one most of the time. But in a country like Russia, where history plays such a central imaginative role, and where it is still being used as a tool of power, we ought, I think, to take a very long view. In studying the Kremlin, I've struggled to find a single moment when the place was not being used to convey a message about the predestined, time-honoured nature of the ruler of the day, whoever he was. It's the idea that the tree of Muscovy conveys so beautifully and it's one that's given witnesses from every age a very pleasurable cold shudder. Here's the Marquis de Custine writing in 1839. You must realise, he said, that the Kremlin in Moscow is not at all what it is claimed to be. It is not a palace or a national shrine in which are preserved the historic treasures of the empire. It is not the bulwark of Russia, the revered sanctuary in which sleep saints, the guardians of the motherland. It is both less and more than all of these. It is quite simply a citadel of ghosts. The Marquis got carried away by the sheer horror of it all. To him the Kremlin was a prop of tyrants, a satanic monument, a habitation that would suit some of the personages of the apocalypse. Like the bones of certain gigantic animals, he concluded, the Kremlin proves to us the history of a world of which we might doubt until after seeing the remains. This was thrilling stuff and the Marquis certainly capitalised on it, but the reason for the thrill was not merely the architecture. That, after all, was in fact a hybrid mixture. Any European then or now actually has seen plenty of bits of the Kremlin around them at home. You can go to Bologna or Milan if you like you know, to have a look at something that's the prototype for the walls, for instance, the swallowtail battlements at the top of them come straight from Bologna. You can go to Aberdeen and see a prototype for the Saviour Tower. Some newer parts were even bland. The palace that Nicholas I was building during Custine's visit left another visitor, the Earl of Mayo, completely cold. How the Russian Committee of Taste could have induced themselves to set up an eyesore of such gigantic proportions on so holy a spot, he wrote in 1845, can only be conceived by those who have mused upon the edifices of Trafalgar Square. So it's not the buildings that produce that gothic effect, that shudder. It's the illusion 
of standing in the presence of mysterious and charismatic power. And that illusion, in turn, owes a great deal to what we expect to get from history. You'll hear all that if you ever try and go and get some peace and quiet in the Alexander Gardens. Hear the megaphone commentaries of the tourist guides inviting you to visit the Kremlin and see the place where Ivan the Terrible lived, the palaces of the Tsars. They give you the whole story in a very comfortably potted version. To listen to them, you'd think, as the American writer John Steinbeck did in 1947, that the buildings really are historic and kept just as they were. But that, of course, is where you'd be fooled. The illusion works in part because we all want to believe it. The only thing that's more appealing to history lovers than flashy ermine and diamonds, after all, is a really sticky old bloodstain. But while we're being dazzled and fascinated, there is a very great deal indeed that we do not see, and that, again, is part of the game. Take the hidden wiring of the state, for instance, the underground facilities and the modern surveillance equipment, again, that I'm not allowed to comment on. Ponder for a second on the iconography of the ultra-modern fitness machines in Mr. Putin's private gym. You could even let your imagination go on a nostalgic tour of the shabby relics of state socialism in the basement of Khrushchev's Palace of Congresses. None of that is part of our historic feeling about the Kremlin, the shudder we're supposed to feel. The Kremlin's mystique is definitely not built upon the porcelain in Putin's private loo. And the deception runs deeper than that. Even the Kremlin that we do get to see is not authentic. There are quite a few major monuments, whole complexes of mighty buildings that have simply disappeared. The most notable are the two great monasteries founded at the turn of the 14th and 15th centuries that used to stand on the site of what is now called Administrative Block 14. They were demolished on Stalin's orders in 1929. And it wasn't just the buildings that the place lost when the monasteries came down. With them went their whole historic and cultural resonance, their meaning. A witness to the place of religion at the heart of the state was lost along with the artistic and textual evidence of the Church's day-to-day -day activities from the 14th to the 20th centuries. A version of the Russian past, and indeed of the Russian state, was destroyed as if it had never been. I could give other examples, but just one may help to make the point. The Kremlin used to be home to more than 2,000 servants, cleaners, priests, monks, guards, soldiers, gardeners, nannies, and palace factotums. The religious types were moved out in the early 1920s, but that still left plenty of people to cram into not very many habitable old buildings, or scarcely habitable old buildings, to be honest. As late as 1930, everyone's children played in the sand and dust around the Tsar Cannon, and the braver ones found secret routes up onto the walls and climbed around playing dare on the towers. In 1932, Stalin changed all that. The place was emptied, the staff were moved out, and even most of the politicians had to find new homes. We know the Kremlin as Stalin created it, as a cold and uninhabited pile of stones. But until recently, it was not a bit like that. Indeed, it was so noisy that successive governments and visitors complained repeatedly about the racket and the smell of horse manure. 
So when did the Kremlin's masters start pretending that the place was immortal and unchanging? Come to that, was there ever a time when it actually felt new? The early chapters of the story are the ones that feature in the icon of the tree. Icons, of course, reflect God's time, so we're looking at an eternal truth. The Moscow in the painting is a holy image, and it's meant to make you think about the heavenly Jerusalem. But there are lots of other things to think about as well, starting with the two characters in the centre of the scene at the bottom there behind the Kremlin walls. The one on the left, as you are looking at it, is meant to be Metropolitan Peter, the 14th century leader of the Russian Orthodox Church. The one on the right is the new Prince of Moscow, Ivan I, and the two of them are planting a tree that will bear fruit as we climb its branches as the historic blessed state of Muscovy. And the pair really did found a cathedral. The date was 1326, and in many ways it was a turning point in the Kremlin's fortunes as a religious and political centre. But what is not shown in the painting is also interesting. The prince in the picture may well have been pious, as he seems to be. We can't be sure, we actually don't know. But he was certainly a tax farmer, and he bled his Russian Orthodox neighbours white to pay protection money to the infidel Mongols. The picture makes him look like the heir of Kiev and Byzantium, but in fact he had no connection to either place. These dismal facts, however, were all but cancelled out by the building of that stone cathedral in Moscow's wooden fortress, the prototype Kremlin. And when Metropolitan Peter died, also in 1326, he was buried in it, which gave the building and Prince Ivan's fortress a special charisma that church and state promptly capitalised on by making him a saint. But the story didn't run easily from there. It took another 150 years for Moscow to stabilise, and some people think its dynasty was only saved by the Black Death, which killed off so many potential heirs that the state didn't quite manage to rip itself to shreds. <coughs> so it was not until the 1480s that the Kremlin we know today was founded, complete with the present incarnation of the Dormition Cathedral, the one in the picture, and all those iconic red brick walls and battlements. But the dynasty's troubles didn't end. The succession remained insecure. It was like rail track and the wrong kind of rain. There were lots of boys around, but never quite the ideal male heir. And even the infamous Ivan the Terrible needed some help projecting an image of divine and predestined power. He got that from his church leaders. One thing they did was to create a splendid genealogy for him, entirely fictitious. Another was to devise a series of public rituals that brought the court out of the Kremlin and into public view. One of the most spectacular of these was performed at Epiphany, which means early January, which in Moscow means freezing cold. It was witnessed in the time of Ivan the Terrible by an Englishman called Anthony Jenkinson, who visited Moscow in 1558. What he saw involved the entire court, all most richly apparelled with gold, pearls, precious stones and costly furs. And the most striking moment came when the whole company, including the Tsar and the Metropolitan, filed out to a pre-cut hole in the frozen surface of the Moscow River, where the Metropolitan blessed the water, hauled some out, and then started sprinkling it in the cold all over the Tsar and the court. That's done, Jenkinson explained, the people with great thronging filled pots of the said water 
and divers children were thrown in and sick people and plucked out quickly again. And there being brought the emperor's best horses to drink at the said hallow water, all this being en ended, he returned to his palace again. So that was 1558. About a hundred years later, another visitor, this time a Syrian monk called Paul of Aleppo, witnessed exactly the same scene, complete with frozen river, pre-cut hole, icy water and horses. And he was struck by the respect for historical continuity in everything at court, from the Kremlin's buildings and rituals to the dynasty itself. The origin of this imperial family of Muscovy is believed by persons who examine the truth of history, he wrote, to have been from Rome. Observe how this august race, from that age until now, has been preserved in uninterrupted succession. That, of course, was just the point. There was no continuity at all. In the century that separated Jenkinson from Paul of Aleppo, Russia had torn itself apart, and the Rurikid dynasty, the original dynasty at the bottom of the painting, had been extinguished. Even the Kremlin had been reduced to a shell. Court records from the 1620s are particularly eloquent about the dereliction of the walls. The Kremlin was, of course, rebuilt, and it was at this time that a fragile new dynasty decided, the Romanovs, decided to make its squat-looking towers look more impressive and more suited to the eternal Muscovite capital. The Kremlin they inherited had Italianate, round, low towers. They imported some architects from the British Isles this time, who added the fantastic gatehouse tower over the Saviour Gate, the one with the clock. And that takes us up to the age of Ushakov, because his icon features that gate and the newly repaired Kremlin walls. It's a tranquil painting that gives no hint of the appalling bloodshed and destruction of just 50 years before. And the lovely organic tree is meant to make you think that the present ruler in the Kremlin is part of a continuous line, which of course he wasn't. The answer to my question about the origins then is that the Kremlin has been used to project myths about Russia's unbroken history since its founding, since the very earliest times. And myths have been the business of the Kremlin ever since. However much has been changed, the latest incarnation is always presented as a timeless historic truth. Russia's past has been so fragmented that there have been instances when the only way to make it look continuous has been to fake something. You're probably all familiar with this particular fake. The red stair on the left of the palace there uh, is, is not original. I have to tell you this if it's disappointing. In the 19th century, when Nicholas I's Grand Kremlin Palace, which is the yellow building behind, was originally being built, the architects had to knock down that historic red, square, red stair that had once led from the palace terraces to the square below. A courtier protested, but she was assured that a replacement would be created that would be more authentic looking than the original. So she was told, not worry about it. It's an idea that we've heard a lot in recent years. Indeed, as some of you will know, it happened again with the very same red stair. The red stair that was rebuilt in the 19th century was demolished in Stalin's time to make space for a canteen and some lavatories. But in 1994, Boris Yeltsin's government built it again, which is what you're looking at now, and I'm sure the idea that time was to make it look more authentic than it was before. 
How sad, really, Yeltsin confided to his diary in 1998, that we have lost the sense of wholeness and continuity of our history. How desirable it would have been to have all that restored in our country. And the thought of what he actually did to restore wholeness and continuity brings me to the 21st century and to the lessons we may draw from all of this when we try to think about the Kremlin now. It's obvious, of course, that a great deal has changed since Tsarist times. This was Red Square at the end of the 19th century. The Bolsheviks were the ones who tidied it up. It's a great shame, isn't it? It looks really interesting there. And in the process, they made the whole place look more austere. They also naturally exploited the link between Lenin and far older leaders of the Holy Russian State. So this is um, Lenin's mausoleum with the tower behind and St. Basil's to give you the idea of how those things are being juxtaposed. In the course of the 20th century, the Kremlin became a symbol, perhaps the symbol, of Soviet power. It was also a byword for political oppression and secretive, unrepresentative government. And when Soviet power began to collapse, those were amongst its worst problems, although it has to be added, it was also like the leaders in a rather shabby physical state. Gorbachev himself had no time and no stomach to deal with the problem of the Kremlin as a place. Like many other Soviet leaders, in fact, he preferred to work from an office in nearby Old Square. But Yeltsin had to address the Kremlin question. As Russia's first elected president, he had to decide what the Kremlin might represent at the heart of a democratic state. There was a brief move right at the beginning to turn it into a museum. That idea haunts the place. But once again, the idea was, the point was, the problem was, that the new regime was fragile. The symbolism of a base in Russia's historic fortress was invaluable to an insecure new leadership, and they were quick to grasp at it. The presidential government moved in at once, but now they faced a second problem. The place was plastered with red flags, statues of Lenin, and red stars. They had to reinvent the Kremlin as an icon, and the new Russian Federation, the new presidency, could have gone for almost anything. It's, there's a very big choice. The symbolic options covered everything from incense-laden theocracy to the neoclassical chic of the Senate building itself. But the image the new leaders chose for their fortress was 19th century, a solid imperial splendor with hints of nostalgic nationalism. Yeltsin's was to be a Kremlin of Fabergé eggs and gold braid, not a Renaissance palace or a neoclassical centre. Perhaps the leadership hoped to capitalise on the nostalgia for late Tsarism. But choose, the regime certainly did. Its next task was to dismantle Stalin's uglier additions to the site, there were lots of those, and restore the Grand Kremlin Palace to its 19th century false Byzantine glory. So, at the top of the ceremonial staircase inside, the picture of Lenin was replaced by a handy canvas of the correct size that showed a scene from the heroic days of old Russia. Incidentally, the picture of Lenin itself had replaced another canvas of similar size that showed Alexander III. Meanwhile, teams of master builders set about laying new parquet and rolling out miles of gold leaf. The work was hugely expensive. The costs were scandalous but we can talk about that later if you like. What I'd like to talk about now is 
that are the two themes that I started with. And I'll begin by thinking about the myth of continuity. Yeltsin played up to the pomp and circumstance, but it's fallen to Vladimir Putin and his advisers to make the most of the latest version of the past. Putin is a great fan of history. It was his favourite subject at school, apparently. And he has littered the Kremlin's state rooms with statues and portraits of the historical figures that he would like to be compared with, Prime Minister Stolypin being a case in point. But the central message, once again, is that this is a government that is a natural and organic plant in Russian soil. It's a tale that countless Russians seem to yearn to hear. Between 2000 and 2003, repeated polls reflected ordinary Russians' belief in their country's special path, its unique way of life, spiritual culture, predestination, and strong and centralized tradition of government. The picture is changing, or certainly changing in Moscow, particularly as enthusiasm for Putin's third term begins to crumble, or never actually consolidated. But outside Moscow, and among supporters of the government, it remains a truism that Russia is destined to enjoy a strong state, that it's a good thing, stands up to the Americans. And Russians are not the only people who think this. Every commentator, or at least every lazy commentator, who talks about the current regime in Russia will talk about the long tradition of authoritarian rule. The whole point of my book is that I do not think that this is true. The Kremlin is a deceiver, and it has been designed to project a story about Russia that hides far more than it reveals. For one thing, we should question whether the state is in fact so strong. It looks the part... But crime rates, emigration and corruption all suggest a different story. What the talk excuse me, of continuity and strong leadership does is to mesmerise. It gives people an illusion of rightness and good government. If the leaders are happy in their Disney castle, if Russia has its true czar, then we can all get on with our lives and get up to whatever we want to get up to, which is very good. And that leads me straight back to the theme of power. For since historically it has been the least secure incarnations of the Russian state that have made the greatest use of the past, we ought to ask what today's Kremlin can tell us about the people inside. Part of the magic of the place is the history that we happily assign to it. As an interpreter reminded me, people went into some of those palaces and came out blinded. But that history is in the visitors' own minds. As I've explained, very little of what you can see really conveys the past in any real form. A glance at any map or picture of the Kremlins of the past can confirm that. And even after years of studying the place, I often find it difficult to work out where I am in an old painting. I thought hard about this, because if you ask me too many questions about it, I shall get very embarrassed. Um, this is an 18th century engraving of the Kremlin, which in some ways encapsulates everything I'm saying. The foreground is empty because Moscow has just suffered a devastating fire. And if you look carefully at the other side, you can see the beginnings of the construction of Peter the Great's earth bastions, which were built to defend the Kremlin against Swedish attack. So this is a fragile state, and it's also an unrecognisable Kremlin. The towers, only perhaps a third of them, still survive now. So continuity is an illusion. Part of the Kremlin's magic is the scale and glamour of the place, and part of it is the sense of history that people take into the buildings with them. 
but the real essence is the mystery that we choose to invest it with. So I'd like to end my talk this evening by taking you with me on a private tour. If you read my book, which I hope you will, you can enjoy the extended version. But for now, we'll have to make a limited selection from the beautiful antique keys that the curator keeps in her cupboard in one of the Kremlin cathedrals. And we'll have to grab a pair of pliers because we're going to go through some sealed doors. And we're going to walk past the guards at the palace gate towards the rooms that nobody ever sees. It's something that everybody dreams about, but very few will ever get to do. And I am tremendously grateful to the Kremlin staff who made me so welcome during the time that I was doing my research and took me on several tours. We mustn't stray, by the way. There are places that we mustn't go. I discovered this when I stepped inside what remained of Stalin's private cinema. It's full of potted palms, and from behind one of them, a guard materialised and ushered me out. What it was I wasn't supposed to see, I really don't know. Maybe there's something in the palms. But I can show you something that is just as good. To get to it, we'll have to climb the grand stairs and cross an enormous parquet hall. And then I'll get the pliers out, because I've done it before so I'm more confident, <laughs> open the sealed gates and lead you down into a dark, silent space, quite different from the brightly lit places we've just crossed, quite different from what tourists get to see. There are no chandeliers here. Once our eyes have adjusted, we'll realise that we're in a church. Indeed, we're in the church that Tsar Alexei Mikhailovich, Ushakov's Tsar, loved most of all. And right in front of us are several icons that Ushakov himself painted. But what is strange, after we've looked at those, is that there is no glint of gold or silver in the mount surrounding them. The antique silver iconostasis in here was ripped out and melted down in the 1920s, and the order came directly from Lenin's office. If we start thinking about that, we can assess how the Kremlin's masters really feel about history and continuity when no one is watching them. Stepping over to a window, we can look out at the site of demolished buildings and try to picture the view as it once was. There are many things that are missing as you look across the courtyards. And then we start walking again, following miles of red carpeted corridor and peering into several more dark, asset-stripped ancient churches. Things start to get shabbier the further we go, and eventually the place starts to feel less like a palace and more like the back room of a junk shop. We're on the ground floor, but there are stairs in front of us that lead down in a spiral. The carpet here is threadbare, and the walls could do with some paint. As we go down, it becomes clear that we're visiting another church. This one was founded in the 14th century. In fact, it's the oldest church in the entire palace. But it was lost during the rebuilding that followed. It was actually lost in the 17th century, forgotten about, built over, and only rediscovered in the 1840s. That in itself is an interesting thought. But what really catches my eye are the items that are being stored in the old building now. The sacred walls have been whitewashed. In fact, there's a paint-spattered dust sheet in the corner and there are a few ladders leaning against the wall. But the church is also being used, don't tell the fire department, 
The church is also being used to dump the clutter that the Kremlin's current occupants don't want. There are a couple of red flags. There are some rather tacky reproduction tables. There's a broken-looking cabriole-leg chair. It's as if a selection of discarded versions of the Kremlin's past had been assembled in a time capsule, collapsing decade upon decade into one surreal space. Here is the truth that lies behind a good deal of the Kremlin's fabled secrecy. Here too, I'd like to argue, is the proof that Russia is not fated to follow any special path. The Citadel doesn't contain some archaic mystery of Russian power. The occupants use it to project the images that suit them in the short term, but the evidence of recent building work and all the junk prove that each incarnation is short-lived and dispensable. When today's Russian leaders talk about the mighty state, the so-called traditions that they've dubbed sovereign democracy, they're making a choice, just as Yeltsin did when he opted for an imperial-style Kremlin. History has very little to do with it. It's the decision of a small group of people operating mainly in their own interests. The centuries of precedent that the Kremlin seems to project are an illusion. As that discarded red flag and the broken chair attest, the current set of options could be thrown out in the future with as little thought as you might give to last week's flowers. The Russian people are no more doomed to live under dictators than any other nationality. When commentators in Russia say otherwise, or when we lazily dismiss some new ab abuse of power as the way that Russia is, the Kremlin's current masters win again. Russia's people and we have been mesmerized for long enough. I don't know if that's a cheerful conclusion, but I hope it might be a liberating one. Very much, Professor Meredith. Something which displays not only how fascinating the Kremlin is, but also its significance, whether it's myth or illusion or history, perhaps the reality of power, I don't know, but also rather beautiful in places as well. We've got some time for questions. Professor Meredith is very happy uh, to take some questions for about 45 minutes. What I'll do is take a, a number of questions from different parts of the floor, maybe two or three uh, together. It would be helpful to me uh, and to Professor Meredith if you could identify yourself, say if you're a student at the LSE or a student from elsewhere or a visitor uh, to the LSE. Okay, I'll take the first three questions from different parts of the floor. There is a roving mic. Okay, there's one very keen one here, but I'm going to have two more as well. Please, sir. Um, Donald Davidson, the visitor. I, would, I, I just want to point out, I'm sure it's in your book, but it's interesting to point out the audience that, of course, uh, that the Tsars continued to be crowned in the Kremlin. So, you know, it's just interesting to that's the, 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 the continue. Everyone thinks, obviously, about peace of the great changing everything, and yet there's still kind of elements of continuity up until right up until, you know, 1896, when, of course, Nicholas II and Alexander was, was, was crowned in the Kremlin. So it's just interesting to find about these, how the, the role, when everyone, everyone thinks St. Petersburg, they, the, the, the still, Moscow's still playing a role until, until then. Okay, can I have another couple of questions, please? 
Come on, what about in the cheap seats? <laughs> yes, please. Not totally on what you've been talking about, but could you say something about the relationship between the administration and the church currently? Um, currently. Mm -hmm. Can you have one more question? Please. Yeah. Hi, Clive Atkins, visitor. Were you aware that uh, Igor Stravinsky, the great Russian composer nearing death was invited to be buried in the, uh, the Kremlin wall. Okay, you've got Stravinsky church and crowns there. <laughs> it's a nice mixture. <laughs> well, I'll take them in order. Um, you're absolutely right. Um, and what's interesting is that Peter the Great chose to have his empress crowned in the Kremlin. Now, Peter the Great could have organized a ceremony. He was buried in St. Petersburg after all. He could have chosen to organize a ceremony in St. Petersburg for Catherine, his, his consort and empress. But moving it back to the Kremlin gives her a legitimacy that she would not have had any other way. So it's that moment of fragility again. And it's also connecting with the Russian past to be crowned in Moscow. Now, um, the church and the administration currently, it's nothing like it used to be. Um, the administration, of course, uh, a Russian friend of mine calls them podsvechniki, um, which is a, a, a pun. Podsvechniki um, are snowdrops. Podsvechniki are people who stand underneath candles, um, who were not Christians before. Uh, and a lot of people in the Russian leadership now make a very big display of their orthodox faith, which may or may not be genuine. Of course, they may have converted, but um, it is good for the way you look to be seen with a priest. The priests look great. The clothes are fantastic. Um, so it does really help the administration to appear to be working very closely with the orthodox church. And of course, the orthodox church has been a tremendous bulwark of the current regime. Um, praise for it regularly uh, and publicly. Um, but the church does not have the political power that it used to have. It's not able to influence the government in the way that it, it once did. Um, that really ended in the 17th century. Um, and if you want me to tell you that story, I'd be very happy to, but you did ask about now. Uh, lots of people buried in the Kremlin wall. I wasn't actually aware about Igor Stravinsky. Thank you very much. He wasn't, of course, I know, but... Of course he wasn't buried in the Kremlin Wall, but I didn't know he was even asked. Okay, thank you. Some more questions? Please. Uh, could you please comment on the current construction works in Kremlin? Uh, I mean, when uh, in Tainitsky Garden and the helicopter part and the 20,000 square meters building. Please. Okay. Can we have another question? Hello, I'm a postgraduate student here. I'm studying history. Um, I just wanted to ask you that this idea of imbuing certain spaces 
indeed entire territories with meaning and continuity which isn't actually historically accurate has been a hallmark of nationalism for some centuries and is true for other contexts just as much as it's true for uh, the Kremlin and Russia. Um, I wanted to ask you what do you think is the specificity of this case as opposed to sort of any other case of nationalist state-led history which have, uh, which have similar projects? I have another question which gives Professor Murdoch a chance to think about that one. <laughs> I've done it. Another question? Over here? Yes, right at the back, please. Russell Neal, visitor. Um, my question is I thought um, the uh, uh, Soviet Union uh, collapsed, I thought it was based. It's to do with the inefficiency of the uh, Soviet economy and also the um, price of oil, um, world price of oil fell in the 1980s and oil was an important export of the Soviet, then Soviet Union. Sorry, uh, uh, that's a statement. What's, what's, what's the question? I'm Right. Um, I think I'll start with the uh, second question, the one that I was supposed to think about for longest. <laughs> and obviously it would be a very interesting question to discuss at a great deal more length than we have time to do. Um, yes, Sites, of course, and Pierre Nora. I, I, when I set out to write this book, I dared myself to write an entire book about a site without mentioning Pierre Nora but uh, it can't be done, I and mean, you have to at least allude to him. And this idea of lieu de mémoire and how important they are to the way a country remembers itself and thinks about itself. So obviously this is not a uniquely Russian idea. What's special about the Kremlin is that it is continuously occupied. So if you think about 10 Downing Street, it's not somewhere that we start thinking about 1066 in. But if you think about the Kremlin, which is similarly the residence of the head of state, the president, and it's a seat of government, people do talk about Ivan the Terrible. Same thing goes for the White House, same thing goes for the Champs-Élysées, I mean anywhere that you can think of that is the centre of a modern state, the G8, or whatever you want to call it, it's very unlikely that you're going to find the head of state in the same place that the head of state was in 1326. And that is why the Kremlin is special and it's the, the, the use of history, it's the direct allusion to history, the control of history, the way in which it is much more manipulated in Russia than it is in most democratic countries outside Russia. Okay? Now, uh, construction work in the Kremlin, not from UNESCO, are you? <laughs> um, there is an awful lot going on in the Kremlin that if it were um, serious about its status as a World Heritage Site uh, would not be permitted. The Kremlin is currently, with Red Square, on the UNESCO list of World Heritage Sites, but that status is now in question and it may stop being on the list at some point in the next year or so because there is an awful lot going on that, that shouldn't be and amongst other things you mentioned you know, helicopter pads there is an enormous amount of building we're not allowed to see um, and has been ever since time immemorial, always the Kremlin is changing. The reason UNESCO is most worried about it isn't what's going on inside the Kremlin actually, but what's going on immediately around it, the change to the skyline and uh, the building of enormous buildings around Red Square, the um, crowding in of Red Square with buildings which are largely commercial. Um, it has to be said that London 
has the same questions being asked about it. What's happening to our historic skyline? So um, it's very difficult. When you have a UNESCO World Heritage Site, which is also a seat of government and a government that is particularly concerned about its security, you're bound to have a clash. We only get, as tourists or visitors, to see about a third of the Kremlin's buildings, um, the area of the Kremlin. The rest of it is shut off, and large parts of what's behind that shutting off are changing very radically indeed. The USSR collapsed for a very large number of reasons, um, which we could discuss. Uh, the oil crisis was certainly one of them. The inefficiency of the economy was certainly one of them. Failure of nerve was certainly one of them. Internal contradictions, nationalism, um, but we're not doing that. Okay, thank you. Again, it's a very questions. Can I, can I have some more questions, please? Okay, I've got one here. Yep. Hi, uh, Jimmy Chen. I'm a government and history student at the LSE. Uh, I was wondering, uh, obviously, during the sort of uh, time frame you talked about, uh, you mentioned the time of troubles and, the, uh, and 1612 when the Kremlin was under threat, um, but also uh, the other significant time, I guess, was 1812 when Napoleon occupied the Kremlin for like a month did nothing there and half his army starved to death. Um, but I was just uh, wondering, do you think that had Napoleon's kind of spent more time trying to, I mean, obviously the, um, there were the uh, imperial ideals and also the revolutionary ideals embodied by Napoleon. Um, but do you think he could have in a way consolidated at least more territory in Russia if he had uh, if he had used the Kremlin itself as uh, as his sort of symbol um, of rule uh, I mean he wasn't there for very long but yeah do you think he, sh he could use his time there more wisely Visitor from outside. Well, I, I don't know well, exactly what your book is aiming at, but I think there's something that one cannot forget about what is anyway Russian history and is deeply rooted into the traditions of a Russian people. One is fact religion and is such a peculiar relation between government, power and religion. It has always been like that with this kind of Byzantine, Pravoslavsky or whatever you want to call. There's always been religion used as a kind of support for political power and we cannot forget that Stalin was the first one to demolish so many monasteries when actually when he had to send so many soldiers to die in the Second World War, he asked the, um, the Patriots to go and just make and kind of bless the soldiers and just kiss the icon that is so deeply rooted into the Russian people. And apart then the fact that the Kremlin has always been the center of power is the idea again of continuity and as a fact that also this Moscow is made of a concentric so the Kremlin is quite in the center so it's difficult to place somewhere else as a, as a kind of visual thing and also because Russia feels in a way that they want a strong state 
and, uh, and you know, not in a different way from any other country. I mean, I'm a foreigner, but I think United Kingdom think exactly the same. They still think that history in one way of being part of an empire. So we say, well, we shouldn't recognize that to Russia that is an empire and a great power anyway, being so big with all the natural resources, regardless of the economy in one way. But it's, anyway, it's normal that Russian is think to be. Yes. The fact that you say is about also about the Polish, the 1612, well, Russia feels the same. They've always been feeling they could be attacked at any time in their history. They've been a little bit weak, uh, had a weak government. There's always been someone ready to just try to profit of that. And one was the Polish, when there was a time it was a the government was weak, and again, any time it was weak, even during the Soviet time, it was the collapse, and the West tried just to, to profit of that. European Union is trying one way to profit about that. NATO, in one way, is trying to profit about that, extending. So if you think about in the Russian language, you don't have a positive name for security and safety, but in Russia you say, yes, a partner. that means with no danger. So it's something that is in, in, in their mind. So I will learn the thing, and the other thing, the last thing is the Kremlin is so big. So it's actually it's also a museum. You can go to see the Ospiensky Sabor and all the other, like the Arugenaya. So you can go and see so many museums and churches. And of course, in one way, and it's a theater as well. So it's not just power, it's, it's much more. It's an enormous citadel. Thank you. Okay, thank you. I, I'm, I'm not quite sure what the question is. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I mean, I, I know there are one or two other questions to be asked, but I think do you want to try and take those? Okay, sure. Two. Um, large issues. I, I feel a bit like, you know, sort of, could Napoleon have done better? Um, that's a really. <laughs> um, Napoleon, of course. Um, he, was, he, he, he loved the idea of being in the Kremlin. Um, he found it wonderful, and once he got, actually got inside, it wasn't easy getting inside. The gates were locked, and the French army was attacked as it went through the Kremlin gates by a, a drunken crowd of defenders. But once Napoleon got into the palaces with the clocks still ticking and the throne still intact, you know, he started to see himself in a rather different way. Um, could he have done things differently? Well, he did try to introduce French rule into um, Moscow from the Kremlin. He tried to hold soirees in the Kremlin for the Muscovites. He imported an Italian singer and a French pianist to come and entertain people. He wanted to have a theatre. Um, it didn't work because, of course, of things that I think were being alluded to by the second person, which is that Russia simply wasn't going to take this kind of the Frenchman in the Kremlin. The symbolism of the Kremlin as our national um, pantheon and Napoleon in it was just uh, completely unacceptable. Um, once Moscow had burnt, I don't think there was very much Napoleon could do. And as you probably also know, his answer was to mine the Kremlin. He had it mined before he left in October 1812. And there is a, a story that goes around in Moscow that uh, the mines didn't destroy the Kremlin because it rained on the day in question. And the other possibility is that, uh, for one thing, the gunpowder wasn't particularly well laid. And the other possibility is, actually, a lot of the Kremlin was destroyed. But we're not supposed to see it like that. So the myth is that the Kremlin survived intact. In fact, um, quite a lot of it was damaged quite severely. Two of the towers were knocked down to the ground. Um, one of the internal churches um, near the Ivan Bell Tower was destroyed completely. But the thing still stood. That's, that's the important 
message. So could Napoleon have done better? He shouldn't have stayed there. He should have pressed on. Um, sitting around into the winter, bad idea. Um, religion. I don't know how Stalin's uh, religious beliefs come across to anyone else, but having interviewed a lot of Red Army soldiers, I don't think they had the impression that the Patriarch was doing very much for them. Um, most of them actually, when I interviewed them, didn't talk very much about being religious. Um, so that side of it isn't very public. What was going on inside the Kremlin in 1941 is another question and there are a lot of stories about Stalin holding a secret service in 1941 in the Cathedral of the Dormition um, for the Russian war effort. Um, whether or not they're true, it's a myth um, that I have found no evidence either way to prove or disprove. The Cathedral was there, Stalin was there, it's perfectly possible. Um, the Kremlin at the center of Moscow's concentric circles. Well, this raises the big question about what is the Kremlin for in the end. What do you do with a great big historic fortress with big walls around it and towers in which you may have your government or you could turn it into a museum? And the Tower of London is in London, but we don't have our government in it. And it is a museum. So there's a parallel. Moscow, of course, was designed in circles around the Kremlin, but that doesn't mean the government has to be there. Khrushchev considered moving the government out and actually rather liked the idea of moving the government out because he liked semi-bucolic life and he wanted to be somewhere where there were apple trees and cows and fresh air. So for a short time in the 1960s, there was a discussion about having the Kremlin a museum and having the government um, up near where the university now is, Moscow State University. Always what stops that from happening is that the Kremlin is actually incredibly functional. It's not just that it's very beautiful and very historic, but it has big walls around it with gates that you can lock, and underneath it, it has a very large amount of hardware, and there's a nuclear bunker, there are escape routes, I mean, there, are, there really are tunnels that lead out into Moscow from the Kremlin. So if you're a government, even quite a secure one, the idea of handing that over to anyone else, in the end, you balk at it. That's what's always happened. Okay. okay. There's a question here. When, when you, yes. Take a few more questions. Hi. Uh, I'm an A-level history student. And I um, was wondering if there were other reasons for Lenin moving uh, from Petrograd to Moscow other than just uh, historical Did you hear that? Yes, why did Lenin move in? Yes. Hello, um, I'm a visitor. Um, my question is, Marshall McEwen um, used to talk about literal society and tribalistic societies. And he said tribalistic societies tended to uh, build on tradition and how we've always done things. Do you feel that, uh, apart from brief flowering under Lenin and Trotsky, that Russia, they, they effectively gave up and realized that they couldn't move Russia to be a modern Western literal type society, which I think we're seeing slowly change here. We're moving back to a more tribal society. And that's why the Kremlin has always been important to look back to the way we've always done things. I think it's slightly like the retreat from Moscow. I think it's like, it's like the farewell symphony to me, actually. In the end, there'll be just one cellist. Okay, I'll, I'll take one more question here, please, in the middle. 
I'm a visitor here. Um, would you argue that without the use of the Kremlin and its history, the Bolsheviks wouldn't have consolidated their power after the Civil War? Well, that's really interesting because that goes with question one. Um, so, so we can actually put the two together, can't we? Why did the Bolsheviks adopt the Kremlin? Well, Lenin hated it. Uh, he really didn't want to be there. He didn't like Moscow. But the Kremlin, as I said before, was a fantastic facility. And if you're fighting a civil war and you're being threatened from the north, Petrograd was very vulnerable in 1918 to Udenich, as those of you who studied the civil war will know. So it was actually very close to the front. And it was not in the center of Russia. So to go back to the comments that were coming from, from my right, um, the center of Russia is a very good place. If you're going to hold Russia after a revolution, Moscow has huge appeal. And so it was decided actually quite early um, at the end of 1917, beginning of 1918, to move to the Kremlin, partly to use the iconography of it, but for a lot of other reasons too. Because it was secure, you could shut the gates. Because Moscow was at the center of the railway network, because Moscow was a long way from the front, all those reasons, but also because of the iconography, it became more and more obvious how to use the Kremlin once they were in it. So they started off rather uncertain about whether this would be permanent or not, and they became more and more almost euphoric as they realized what they could do. Would they have been able to consolidate power without the Kremlin? I think they wouldn't have been able to consolidate power from St. Petersburg, Petrograd, because they would have fallen under occupation. But um, they could have done a lot from Moscow. Um, Kazimir Malievich was put in charge of the Kremlin in 1917. Um, he was not, as you know, uh, a Bolshevik leader. He was an artist. Um, and his first thought was to turn the place into a museum of modern art. After that, at the end of 1917, a whole group of artists wanted to turn the Kremlin into a completely futuristic museum and link it to some of the buildings in central Moscow by sky-based walkways so that you could walk around Moscow and see the future and it would center on the Kremlin. So in parallel with the Bolsheviks who were using the iconography of continuity and Russia and strong Russia, you always had this utopian streak that wanted to turn it into a rocket launch pad or you know, a sort of flashing beacon of futurism at the center of what was going to be the most exciting revolution history had ever seen. So it's always, in the early years, up until the 1930s, was a very controversial place and a very exciting place. Now, um, is it always the case that Russia is, is tribal and reverts to how it's always been? Well, I think, no. Um, Peter the Great, for instance, tried very hard to turn it into something else. And he would have used the Kremlin in order to emphasize the things that needed emphasizing about power, and also because he was fascinated by the antiques, actually. Um, he was the first one to set up a museum in the Kremlin and to invite people to come and look at the old, you know, the, the saddles and the, the swords and the peculiar mitres and stuff, which really interested him. Um, but he was modernizing, and that has happened over and over again. So you have both things. It's not continuous, and that's why I say it's not continuous. It's discontinuous history posing as a continuous one. Mm, if you like. Thank you very much. Uh, I'll, give, I'll take one more, uh, a very, very last question. There's one there. Are there any more questions? Two, three. Last three questions. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Surely the Palace of Westminster over a thousand year period has had exactly the same ongoing PR historical function as the Kremlin. 
I'd see no real difference between the two except size. Okay, that's you. Uh, there's one here. Yes, please. I'm a visitor. Um, you, you talked about um, when uh, in places that people can't see in the Kremlin, people had no um, sort of worries about taking precious metals and things away to, to use. Um, there's an awful lot of stuff that in the armory, for example, that, that when Lenin arrived, nobody would have noticed if they'd have melted down lots of bits of gold and things. So, so why hang on to things, particularly religious iconography, um, sort of icons and all sorts of things like that, if it's stuff that people wouldn't miss necessarily? There's a question over here. Hi, thank you. Um, I, I wonder if you were struck by the irony, as I was, that Yeltsin has turned it into a czarist palace because, of course, most of the czars didn't actually live there. And you touched on this briefly in your last uh, question with reference to Peter the Great, but perhaps you could elaborate a bit more on how the later czars in Imperial Russia saw and used the Kremlin while living in St. Petersburg. Would you say that in terms of the um, historical continuity and the functions it still fulfills, the Kremlin is unique in the world? I know someone asked that question about the Palace of Westminster and perhaps they might be considered to be on a par, but are there any other national buildings which have such um, resonance in the history of the relevant country? Mm -hmm. Okay, well, why don't I finish with the question of uniqueness and start with the other two. Um, and I'll take them chronologically, the czars. Um, some czars really liked living in the Kremlin and others didn't. Um, up until uh, Ivan the Terrible moved out. Um, that's, I mean, he was the first to move out altogether. Um, and he built himself an alternative palace on the other bank of the Negrinaya River, which was even more horrifying than the Kremlin. I mean, it had everything that the Kremlin had in gold, his palace had in black. Um, and a sort of very unpleasant uh, appearance and very scary for everybody who came near it. That burnt down. Um, fortunately and, and, and doesn't exist and so it didn't scare anybody for that long but after Ivan most of the Tsars lived in the Kremlin in palaces that were built for them until as you say Peter the Great um, who moved obviously to St. Petersburg and after that with St. Petersburg and Tsarskoe Selo and all those nice places you could stay that were so much more civilised and had heating that worked um, the Tsars didn't ever live permanently in Moscow again but some liked it and some didn't and it's almost a barometer of their feelings about Muscovite culture versus European culture whether they liked it so Alexander II hated it and didn't like being there Alexander III really liked it Nicholas I really liked the Kremlin and considered living in it permanently and Nicholas II rather uh, that the last Tsar got quite um, carried away when he went to stay in the Kremlin and started feeling that he was at last in touch with the roots of what made him special and what made Russia holy um, said he'd never been so um, euphoric in his life he felt completely calm and free of all the worries that had been troubling him back in nasty old St. Petersburg so it varied is the answer and where they lived varied as well there was a small palace and there was a very grand palace they had small rooms where they could feel more at home in the grand palace um, as time went by now why hang on to things 
Um, there was a committee that, I mean, it's not just, the, the regime, as I say, is, is not one person. There are a lot of people involved, and there was a committee of art historians who struggled very hard to save the nation's treasures. And there was a man in the Bolshevik government called Anatoly Lunacharsky, who you may have heard of, who was commissar for education, amongst other things, who, who and in fact, Trotsky's wife also, um, who was in charge of the Kremlin museums until Trotsky fell from grace. Both of them fought very hard to save the Kremlin's treasures. And they literally had people working all night to save things from the furnaces. And there were two categories of things that were saved. On the one hand, things that were considered great art were saved by Lunacharsky's commission, working day and night. And I think they didn't save the half of it, um, unfortunately. And on the other hand, there were things that were really precious and that the Bolsheviks would really have liked to sell on the international market, but they really couldn't shift. Um, it's difficult to get rid of the crown jewels of one of the great imperial families of Europe. In fact, they pawned them for a while. They were in Ireland. Um, part of the czarist um, coronation regalia ended up in Dublin, being looked after by a Mrs. something, I can't remember what her name was, but anyway, a Mrs. Fraser, I think, um, who got, got them from her husband when he died. And the, the Russian government had to buy them back in 1946. So, so they did shift some of it, but not permanently. The rest of it they kept, and then gradually began to realize that actually, this was something they wanted to put on display. The Kremlin museums were opened in the 50s, the 1950s. Up until then, you really had to have very good connections to get a tour of the place. Now, is it unique, and is the Palace of Westminster a runner? Well, you may think the Palace of Westminster is a runner. I actually don't. I don't think it has that... First of all, it isn't surrounded by high walls. It was never the centre of a, a national war. Um, <laughs> It is, of course, a fake, as we all know, but we can get over that because I've already said the Kremlin is too. It's not the residence of the royal family, the power that is still. It's not a continuous residence. And it's, it doesn't have the associations that the Kremlin has. But um, are there any other places? I would say yes, there are. The obvious one is the Vatican which, of course, is the seat of a charismatic, historically rooted power, which combines, which is what Westminster does not combine, theocracy and earthly power. And those two things together, I think, make the Vatican a real runner. And when I discussed doing this project in the first instance, I talked to a historian of the Vatican who said, you will die, you know, you'll never be able to do it. Because, of course, these histories are so rich. And that was part of the appeal for me. I think, but I don't know, that the Forbidden City would be another possibility that we might consider. So there are probably two or three parallels in the world which will have different resonances, but the same overall kind of relationship to the national histories that they represent. But you've got to have religious power, you've got to have struggle, war, a great deal of blood, and you've got to have a, a myth of continuity, which is credible, I think, for this to work. Okay, before, before we thank Professor Noida, can I just say um, the practical uh, point? Uh, there are some of these books outside if you would like to purchase one. If you would like Professor Noida to sign it, she will be here uh, for a while. You can bring the book back and she'll sign it. Here, I've read it. I'm a Maladiet, so <laughs> it is extraordinarily uh, rich, and we've really, in some ways, sort of skimmed the surface. Uh, I think, have, you know, in 45 minutes, it's it's difficult to do to do more than that. But I would like to register thanks, firstly, to you, the, the audience, uh, not only for coming, but for the questions that, that you've asked, 
And secondly, of course, most importantly, Professor Meridale uh, for giving us this insightful talk on the Kremlin and then for taking a, a range of questions which really ranged across uh, centuries, uh, concepts, uh, and even outside uh, Russia. And I think, in, in particular, some of those answers to the questions, I think, will give you an insight into the, the richness of, of this book and the depths of study that's gone into it. So, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.